Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today, I'm a huge fan of, and I think he's underappreciated in my opinion, but uh, he is the current lead producer at Deck Nine Games, but you probably know him best from his uh, tenure at Retro Studios. Uh, he's worked on Prime 2, Prime 3, Donkey Kong Country Returns, and Mario Kart 7. He is the only one. Brian Walker, how are you doing? Good, good. Thank you so much for reaching out to me today, Reese. No worries. I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're a very busy man. <laughs> <laughs> so um, first thing I wanted to cover off with you is because you joined Retro Studios right after Metroid Prime came out, I, I imagine, right? And at this stage, it had already become the highest selling Metroid game and was one of the highest rated games of all time on Metacritic. Was there a bit of anxiety on your end when you joined because you're like, wow, okay, I have to manage... The, these guys and try and help them at least hit the same bars they did on the first first game yeah there was some anxiety uh yeah i I'm, i had been very fortunate up to that point to work with some real heavy hitters in the industry such as uh, richard garriott and and sid meyer having uh, had the opportunity of working alongside them and being mentored uh, by uh, one of the most underappreciated executives in the history of the industry, Bing Gordon. Um, I, I knew what great looked like, but I also understood and, and uh, uh, have always had in the back of my mind the quote from one of my uh, mentors also and one, one of the best executive producers I ever worked with, Rob Martin, who uh, said, if you think success is, or you think failure is hard, try success. Uh, and that was, that came from his experience at, uh, Maxis following up on the Sims. So, um, I, I had no, um, uh, I had no, uh, um, delusions about the level of challenge that we would face at retro, uh, taking it to the next level and continue to build on the success that they saw of Metroid prime. But it was, uh, it, it was a, a day-to-day challenge across the board. Yeah. Cause I'm a creative person. So I can only imagine how hard it would be to manage creatives because of the fact that creatives tend to be super sensitive, generally, um, can sometimes uh, have a bit of an ego, not always. Um, so how do you, like from a project management standpoint, how do you get them all to kind of work together to not be any type of envy between the different uh, members and just to really, really form that camaraderie and bring out the best in all of them. That was one of the challenges that we faced uh, as as I stepped in there at Retro Studios was to to help put the team as a whole on a path from the cultural and procedural and professional standpoint to correct from what had been years of, of uh, unfortunately toxic and very dysfunctional uh, operation. They, they were a team of fiercely talented um, and you know, exceptionally uh, uh, experienced developers who had gone through a really, really tough stretch uh, getting, getting Metroid Prime out. The Retro Studios had, you know, uh, these, you know, grand dreams when they started with all these different projects and one by one, the projects faltered. Uh, they fell away for a variety of reasons. And then it came down to an entire team uh, of from a studio that was at one point over 300, if I recall correctly, mm. being trimmed down to about 40 developers. That That's hard. That that by itself is hard. And then 
the the challenge of of taking a game that was at the time uh, called Metaphors, transforming that game uh, upon the the absolutely ingen- ingenious um, um, direction of Mr. Miyamoto, transforming that game to the Metroid Prime uh, franchise. That's that's a lot of turbulence for creative people to to experience, uh, seeing things that they were so vested in either be canceled or heavily transformed. But it it worked out. The, the downside is the team was in a very bad place when I got there and helping them understand what's in the past stayed in the past, but what's in the future is what we as a team could directly impact. And it was, it was not, okay, they did this to us, or he said that to us, or she did this. It was, what can we do as a team to build on the success of what was a brilliant title and take the, the studio uh, to uh, an entirely different level. And, and that was, that was a long journey, but it was very gratifying. Mm-hmm. So what's it like to sit in in some of these meetings with all these creatives? This, the, the caliber of individual you worked with at the time was obviously next level, but um, all these guys throwing different, uh, all these guys and girls throwing different ideas out and you're hearing all these different ideas and then having to work out what's going to end up on the cutting room floor and, and what, what you focus on. It's the three most important aspects of, of any development team that I've worked with has been the fundamentals of respect, uh, resourcefulness, and I think perhaps most importantly, depending upon where you are in the development process, resilience. As a team and as individuals, they have to be passionate but they also have to be flexible as they see what they thought was a fantastic idea absolutely ripped to shreds by somebody somebody else and and but on the other hand that process of ripping it to shreds was that delivered professionally and respectfully was that thought about objectively or were, were there enmities involved and and uh, bad blood from his you know prior examples moving past that kind of nonsense i i kind of refer to that that as kind of the the 90s mindset where uh you know the the creative process was a brawl and you know it took the the person who shouted the loudest or or uh, you know, was the most <laughs> Machiavellian in their in their maneuvers to get their idea forward. We're we're done with that. The creative process now, as much as uh, a lot of the fans like to think it's kind of the Cirque du Soleil with all kinds of colorful, amazing things flying around all the time, the creative process is absolutely an agonizing step by step consideration of verbal and technical trial and error. You come up with an idea, you verbally bounce it off of other people, um, get their perspectives, then you you do a prototype, a little prototype. Did it work? Okay, okay, that worked. Okay, let's take it to the next level. Let's involve some engineering. Let's take it to a larger scale prototype. Oh, it didn't work. Okay, here's why. It's using too much memory. It's going to blow out our budget. Um, okay, let's start from scratch. That cycle of having the carrot dangled in front of creative people and then yanked away for any reason is tough. And it takes a very special breed of developer who can roll with that. And that's the environment that we gradually built at Retro Studios over the years. Mm-hmm. I did read about, and I've heard a lot of rumors online and you see artwork. And so like Ridley, for example, was originally an idea that was um, in Prime 2 and it got scrapped. Was there a particular reason why it was scrapped? It was just budget or time constraints. Um, 
Well, Ridley was in Prime 2. I think you're may, maybe referring to Craig, perhaps? Uh, uh, no, Ridley was in Prime 1, and he's in Prime, well, Prime 3. One, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pardon me, yep. yeah. yeah there, in Prime 2, we um, wanted to introduce some some more characters, in, mm. in some, especially some of the bosses. And that's really, I think, one of the, the strengths of the Prime series has been the design and the experiences that the bosses represent. Um, we had the good fortune of having uh, excellent tools to work with for the developers and the engineers to create the boss encounters. But we also had uh, the assistance of Mr. Tanabe, who, if he could only do one thing, boss design would be it. Uh, he he is just at a absolutely um, super genius level of, of design capability for what a, the pacing and the challenge and the flow of a boss encounter looks like. All of the boss encounters in the in not just the the Prime series but also the DK series as well really benefited from his involvement. Is there something specifically that he he says or he does that? It's I it's one of these kind of a beautiful mind type of things where mm. he's you know we're looking or I'm you know, I'm sorry uh, you know I, I'm a mediocre designer on a good day um, mm-hmm. you know I'm looking at at an encounter on a screen and you can tell that he's seeing the matrix behind that he's seeing the the specific timings and the opportunities and how to interject the tempos up and down um, and his yeah his his feedback was was it was a true honor learning from how he developed the, the boss. And, and sometimes it, I mean, it was literally just the making the, a, a timing, you know, a, a 0.2 seconds difference in a, in a particular, how a particular attack happened or a tell uh, for an attack, a telegraph um, uh, would be displayed. Those, those tiny little uh, d- details that he had a talent for uncovering were uh, really something to see as he went through his process. Because it's well documented now that you could never beat the Boost Ball Guardian. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. I I have to confess, I I said that, and at the time, I was probably irritated because I wasn't able to beat it. I did eventually beat it. Oh, nice. Okay. (laughs) And I did it without the the debug mode. (laughs) I just, I was so uh, heads down. Okay, this is my excuse. I'm so heads down working on the nuts and bolts of the project. You know, that's my, that's my boss encounter managing (laughs) the the workflows and the pipelines and the schedules and keeping everybody from, you know, fighting with each other. Uh, You know, I just sometimes didn't have very much time over the course of a day to sit down and pick up a controller and play the game. So that's that's my story. I'm sticking with it. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear that you beat it. That's good. That's good. We could put that rumor to rest. That's good. Um, <laughs> so, given your uh, background in the military, did you actually have any influence over the design of, say, the Galactic Federation Marines in Prime Two or Prime Three? Very. Uh, uh, in fact, I remember um, in some of the as we were designing some of their encampments, um, uh, Mark Puccini came up and asked me, you know, what a camp, a military encampment would look like. And I talked about, you know, how we how it would be arranged in a triangular fashion with your with your uh, fuel and ammunition ammunition uh, at different uh, parts of the triangle and the pure steel planking on the ground or everything. But other than that, you know, just really minimal, you know. It, uh, I think uh, at one point I was a, a, a space a Galactic Federation trooper saying "Stand to Samus" uh, during uh, during Prime Three. Uh, that was the extent of of how much uh, knowledge I, I threw in <laughs> from <laughs> from a military standpoint. Uh, which I, I was uh, I was always kind of hoping to for a chance to to do more uh, with the, the Galactic Federation in the Prime series, but uh, it, it perhaps Prime Prime Four will have it. 
Yeah, yeah. So is there much, because, you know, with uh, there's obviously quite a change between Prime 2 and Prime 3. And when you're talking about budgets, I mean, voice acting raises the budget quite substantially, right? And because I think a lot of people often forget is you have to record the voicing in not only English, but Japanese. And that's not to mention all the different languages in Europe. Um, is, does that become quite um, quite a bit of a problem? Uh, it is a coordination challenge at times. Yes. Not a problem if you have good people working in concert, uh, to make that happen. And, um, we had at, at retro studios and I think he's still there. In fact, Scott Peterson, who was, I can, I can extend to him as the audio director, the highest compliment I could ever uh, extend to any developer is that if it was on his plate, if if we issued the, the the assignments to Scott, consider it done. Walk away, focus on something else because it would be done on time, at a uh, higher level of quality than you expected. Uh, and Scott's coordination of the voice acting, the music, the sound effects, um, going you know coordinating with the the team, the audio teams and music music teams in Japan, uh, he made uh, my life as as a development director uh, so much easier because I didn't have to worry about those details, put it on Scott's plate. It was done and it was done fantastic. Oh, wow. Now you're the guy that pitched to Nintendo to com do the compilation trilogy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm very much not a me kind of person at, at any stretch, but uh, that one, that one was mine. Yeah. That yeah, was, yeah. Uh, that was a fun project. So how did you pitch it to Nintendo? Cause if they can uh, find a way to release something one by one, at a $60 price point or a $100 price point here in New Zealand, but they will do that. So uh, was it, was it, did it take much to convince them? No, no, surprisingly. Uh, and I think it, it represented a opportunity to take what were already great games in prime one and prime two and adapt them to the, the Wii controller, uh, mm. the Wii, the Wii remote, the, the gameplay experience was enhanced so much in my mind that it, that really by itself justified the compilation yeah yeah well was it quite streamlined though in terms of from the time you pitched it to the time that it was released surprisingly fast yeah um very very little hair pulling uh had to happen for for that one to move forward hmm so tell me how you guys ended up getting Donkey Kong Country Returns, because that seems like a total tonal shift, right, from like a first-person adventure to uh, a bubbly, cartoony platformer. So after Prime 2, uh, Retro was really trying to think of what we wanted to, to move forward with, what was next. We were starting to feel franchise fatigue with the Prime series. Um, and we took a look at a variety of different uh, uh, IPs within the, the Nintendo stable, and DK came up at the at the point. And um, from what I recall, it was uh, forwarded to Mr. Awada, who uh, said, uh, "You know, I, we you know really want Prime Three with its as a first person game uh, to to show off the the new platform, show off the power of the Wii remote." Um, and that was that was a good reason. We understood the corporate uh, strategy, so we transitioned from uh, from uh, Prime Two to Prime Three. At the end of Prime Three, of course, uh, this was uh, well documented as that was winding down. We had um, the design director Mark Puccini, the art director Todd Keller, and our technical director Jack Matthews. Uh, they spun out to um, 
to form armature. Um, and this was jarring for the team because these weren't, these were not just, I mean, highly respected leaders, but these were our friends. These are, you know, we had been in the trenches with these guys for a long time. Um, and we also suffered at the time a huge cultural setback with the, with the team of the loss of Mark Hage, Hague Hutchinson, um, mm. who, who we lost to pancreatic cancer. That was really hard. Um, that was really hard. Um, and it, if it just really didn't feel right, uh, from a creative standpoint, a cultural standpoint, um, to, um, immediately move forward into, into another prime game at the time. And there was a, a lot of conversations going. So I'm, I'm probably, you know, just in the, uh, over time, I'm probably munging a, a lot of the details, but, um, the, the DK IP bubbled up. Uh, as as one that was ready for a revisitation, uh, and not just not just DK because there had been other games with him such as Con uh, Donkey Kong uh, Konga and so forth, but uh, the Donkey Kong Country um, uh, IP, which you know was a hugely successful game on the SNES mm. uh, for you know, and so uh, we got the shot, um, and. This game, the Donkey Kong Country Returns on the Wii for Retro Studios really was, uh, in my time there, really was the high point um, because it, it, it was the result of so many different things that we had worked on with the studios to improve our processes, to improve our tools, to improve our interfaces with our Japanese partners, to, um, and to think outside of what we were comfortable with. Um, that said, when we started doing some, some art mock-ups, we got some palm trees that looked exactly like something you would see in Metroid Prime. <laughs> it's <laughs> very, very sullen, dark, edgy, um, menacing palm trees. So, but we, we learned very quickly. Um, and we started to understand that, you know, we turned up the saturation. We made the, added some deformation, some chibi, some whimsy to it. Um, and you know, the, the, the most, perhaps the most uh, pivotal aspect was having the chance to sit down with Mr. Miyamoto and get an understanding from him what he wanted to see, what he hoped to see with, uh, with DK. And he never at any time stood up and said, this is what it will have. This is your, your checklist. This is what I want, period. Um, he just offered feedback and guidance and mentorship. And that's one of the, the things that made Mr. Miyamoto so valuable as a resource is that he could be incredibly demanding at times. And, and there have been plenty of occasions where he just flipped the table over and said, start again. But he was, was you could tell that he wanted this game to happen, that he wanted to see DK in a new, in a new adventure. And, um, in fact, I'll never forget as we were wrapping up our conversation with him in Kyoto, he he said in English, um, uh, uh, you know, please take care of DK. He is my friend. Oh. Uh, no pressure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no pressure. When the guy who in pretty much invented the video game industry as we know it <laughs> passes that along. And, and that was just like a, a, I mean, it was like a beam from heaven came and hit us in the forehead. Okay, we now have the mission, you know, is to, to not just 
make a game that was better than the original Donkey Kong Country, but make a game that was better than everybody's memories of Donkey Kong Country. And that is a much taller order. <laughs> that is a much taller order. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. And like, I think some people have this idea that moving from, say, something like Metroid Prime into a platformer is actually easier, but it just presents a whole new set of challenges, doesn't it? It was, uh, it was the transition from a technical standpoint was not as hard because our, thanks to our fantastic engineers, um, we had a very robust tool set and uh, a very flexible uh, renderer uh, camera system. Uh, again, calling back to the fantastic work of Mark H. H. Hutchinson. Um, and we were able to create prototypes with remarkable speed as a result. And Nintendo is all about making a prototype. You can throw fancy illustrations and storyboards at them all day. They're not impressed until they can play it. And we were able to, to get playable prototypes. So uh, basically the DK jumping around gray boxes scattered all over the place. Um, we were able to get these prototypes in front of them very quickly and then just soak up that feedback. And this feedback was down to the pixel level. Uh, try this, try this, you know, uh, change the, the ground pounding cadence, uh, you know, one more pixel here, um, you know, give him the ability to perch and lean over, uh, you know, these blocks. Um, and it, it was just this steady stream of really valuable guidance that these early prototypes were able to bring forth that made the project as a whole much more straightforward than if uh, we had been with any other publisher, I'm convinced. Because you've been, you've obviously worked for different gaming companies. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure not all of them would want that, right? They want to nope. some, some want to pitch via a story or an outline as opposed to a prototype. <laughs> one of the publishers, one of the larger publishers I worked with previously, used to joke, if um, your your design document, your initial design document, wasn't the thickness of a uh, phone book, keep trying. What? <laughs> yes, and they would literally joke as we sat down for the design document review process. Um, you know, this feels about right. As they were literally, you know, you know, holding three or four hundred pages in their hands. Yeah, this feels about right. That that represented the amount of diligence that a team was supposed to have put into the process before even they got into a, a prototype. They, that's that's the difference between the Nintendo process and a, and a lot of other developers. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, so I suppose, did you ever challenge it in any of the other publishers? Like, why are we doing it this way? Um, that was a, that was that was the never-ending story. <laughs> <laughs> many, yeah, many, many a uh, challenge uh, on that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's we're we're fortunate in a lot of ways that the standardization of the technologies, the engines such as you know Unreal, Unity, uh, and so forth, have made the prototype process so much more accessible and so much faster. Mm. You don't have to worry about creating your collision system or your renderer or your rasterizer. It's there already. You'd start with that. And you know, back you know, 20 years ago, you were writing these things from scratch. And if you were lucky, you, you used Granny as your uh, or um, uh, you know, one of the off-the-shelf sound systems, and that that was a, as much of a head start as you could enjoy. Um, the the um, the accessibility of prototypes now, uh, and rapid prototyping in particular, is much greater than it used to be. So, did you still have to do since Prime Two and Prime Three were obviously based on the same or the foundations of Prime? Did you still have to do another prototype per se, or are you just like basically adding elements and 
saying, well, this is what we want to do um, with this particular title? There was a, um, with, with Prime 3, for instance, uh, Mark Puccini, uh, who, uh, a shout out to Mark, uh, of the, you know, I've had a chance to work with some fantastic uh, design directors over the years. Mark uh, stands at the very top. Uh, his um, resourcefulness and his insight, his professional uh, bearing, his uh, creativity, of course, and his, his diplomacy uh, was uh, remarkable. And uh, Retro Studios owes a great deal of its success to that individual, Mark Puccini. Um, so I don't, you know, it's a, he's, you know, he'll, he'll probably send me nasty emails, you know, free, feeling self-conscious that I signaled him out. But <laughs> Mark, Mark came forward with a, an interesting twist in the vision um, and some of the formulas for Metroid Prime Three as compared to Metroid Prime Two. Uh, we wanted to, to a greater degree, leverage the ship. Um, as a playable uh, asset, for instance. And we, we had that to some degree in Prime 3, but Mark was thinking uh, uh, much more ambitiously. Uh, perhaps um, there was also an, an op open world, uh, less linear uh, uh, consideration that he uh, was proposing that the team was excited about. And uh, we, we weren't able to prototype a lot of those because those were really... Um, really big uh, we did have some some ship prototypes early but the open world one was was much bigger um but those those were ones that we would we had to do some some dancing in fact mark had printed out as one of his visual aids this origami samus ship he had taken the the um the mesh of the samus ship and used a program that uh, basically unfolded it to uh into a what's what he could then turn into a paper model so he, we had this cardboard uh, uh, Samus ship that he had colored in, uh, and it looked great. It was, you know, I think we could sell it today. <laughs> but, uh, but, but he, he kind of had that as a mascot during some of his uh, some of his presentations, um, and that was that was cool. I'm um, um, yeah, that that was a that was I think an area where we um, we may have fallen short of our goals with with prime three and, and not being able to to expand the formula a bit um, we're still very very proud of prime theory it turned you know it was a, a fantastic game but uh, i would be very interested in seeing what the response was especially the fan community to the expanded use of the ship and the and the more open world non-linear experience that we were touching upon with that pitch i think prime three just goes in a different direction um some people like it some people don't but then I, th I think from a creative standpoint, you guys don't want to rest on the laurels and just copy Metroid Prime or Super Metroid all the time, right? Because that would yeah, be exactly. creatively, it would kill you. You'd become stagnant. So um, I, I, I still think it's, think it's a great game. I do find it interesting, um, the original intent, but these things never go according to plan, I'm sure. There's always curveballs. The, the most resonant vision within the Nintendo design uh, and development culture is the slogan to surprise and delight the player mm. in, in, in that simply to surprise and delight the player. Um, and so there's always going to be innovation. There's always going to be uh, pushing the envelope uh, and shaking things up um, regardless of the, the IP. I, um, I just, yeah, it, it, it was something that I, I was uh, really, uh, um, I'm really curious to see what, what any, additional uh, movement to 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 expand the, the prime uh envelope in the the formula for prime four perhaps how how that's received by the fan community 
Yeah. I did want to ask you about your interactions with um, Satoru Iwata. Um, I'm not sure how many interactions you had with him, but um, what was your experience? He was the most gracious and thoughtful, um, well-spoken, and um, um, inspiring CEO I've ever been around. Uh, I'll pass along an anecdote for you. It, uh, we were at um, E3 as the, the first uh, year that we were uh, dem- demoing Prime 2. We were, Mark and I, Mark Puccini, and I were in the break room uh, t- uh, sitting down. We had been on the floor watching people play and enjoying that a lot. Um, and suddenly our, our Japanese partners that we were talking with, they, they stiffened a little bit and we turned around and there was Mr. Iwata. Mark and I had never spoken to him. He, he had just really come on um, uh, recently. And um, he bowed deeply to us and said, I want to personally thank you for all the hard work that you put into this demo. Um, it looks amazing. And wow. Yeah, I had just come from a from another publisher where you're not going to get a comment like that out of a CEO. So we were we were both taken aback, really. Um, that, but that was the kind of person that Mr. Awada was, and we had uh, a number of uh, exchanges with him over the years. Um, you know, obviously, you know, being so far apart was a um, a challenge, but uh, we spoke to him on a number of occasions uh, about a variety of projects and. Uh, he was um, just, he, you could tell he was always at the next level. He and Mr. Moto um, were just the, the perfect team. Um, and his, you know, Mr. Iwata's background as a developer in the trenches, he knew That's what right. it was like. He knew what we were going through. And, and as, as our Japanese partners uh, <laughs> would remind us every now and then, one of their favorite sayings was, the artist must suffer. <laughs> and Mr. Iwata knew that suffering. He knew the hard work of being a developer. And uh, we respected him um, at a level I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen a development team view a CEO. At. I mean, he was just, uh, he, he was literally our patron saint. Because it's probably quite common in the gaming industry where CEOs don't actually come from the, the game development level. They're not really from the trenches always. So they probably don't fully understand what a game developer has to go through, right? Right. Oh, yeah. 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 In fact, yeah, some some um, CEOs and, and uh, executive staffs kind of look on the, the developers, especially coming out of the 90s when, you know, the developers were, um, you know, kind of looked at developers as the help. You know, mm. the, these, these were the, the kids that smelled a little off that had been living in their mom's basement you know, until they were 25 years old. Um, and, <laughs> you know, the industry was in a huge process of maturation. And I think people like uh, Mr. Iwata and his acknowledgement of the, in, the, the developers as, as valuable contributors and team members rather than, you know, just the, the help was uh, really led a, a reformation how how uh, we we treat our development teams now. Yeah, well, you can see it in the management style as well, right? Because when they were struggling, I think with the Wii U and 3DS, they all took a pay cut in order to avoid like um, making any uh, of the designers redundant. I don't think you'd see that in in Western developers. It's unheard yes. of, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So when when a game is being designed. Is it actually, in terms of the actual design, is it a linear process or more of a non-linear process? So like say with like Prime 2, 
I mean, what would be the area that would be focused on first? I mean, are you starting with something like Sanctuary Fortress or are you starting with like the opening where it actually starts? Or is it all over the place and then somehow you find a way to mesh it all together? Uh, well, with Prime 2, the, the, the success of, of Prime and the, the template, the prototype uh, that it provided as from an experiential standpoint was, was a guideline. But even before that, we you know, still had the original 2D uh, Metroids as, as uh, templates to, to, to look at. And Mr. Sakamoto was also uh, available uh, and very helpful at times uh, as we were you know, taking a look at uh, you know, how a story should inflow, un unfold uh, the retraversal aspects and so forth. So even though um, you know, we weren't interfacing with him on a daily basis, he was still, he was still a resource for us. Um, the, I, I, I equate the experience of development, um, no matter what you're working on, no matter what the IP, no matter how many numbers after the IP name, um, to making uh, making big rocks into little rocks. It is a lot of hard, grueling work. Just keep banging on something uh, until um, you get into a manageable shape. Can you give me um, an example? Oh, <laughs> uh, let's see. The one that hopefully doesn't involve people trying to throttle each other. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, sure. Uh, the the hyper mode. For instance, in in Prime Three, was um, uh, one of the more hotly debated aspects uh, between uh, Retro Studios and our partners in Japan. Uh, Mr. Tanabe had been uh, forwarding Hypermode as uh, something that he was very passionate about, and the initial implementations that we were undergoing, uh, based on that guidance, was um, would in our minds as, as Western developers had, had a lot of issues. And so that went through, gosh, I would say the better part of a year uh, going back and forth, massaging the values, the experience, the timing, where it would happen, how it would happen. Um, it was, uh, it was, if I, you know, and the, the rest of the guys with the prime three team, feel free to um, call me out on this, but uh, I, I seem to remember a full year uh, from the time we initially talked about it until the time we we were um, in consensus across across both offices as to you know this is what we can go with. So what 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 um, what was so much of the discussion about? <clears throat> was it balancing? It was a lot of balancing, a lot of balancing, and a lot of risk reward consideration. Um, right right from the onset, the uh, and in fact it was uh, Mark Haig Hutchinson himself who uh, called out uh, some concerns about you know, the um, willingness of the player to, to use hyper mode in, in its, the way we currently understood and had quantified it um, as being very risky um, with uh, a reward payoff that he didn't feel in particular was, was uh, up, to the, uh, um, up to the risk. And uh, we, we went back and forth on this with uh, Mr. Tanabe in particular on it uh, quite a bit and went through, uh, gosh, dozens and dozens of, of subsequent builds and examples to, to go through it uh, before we got to a place where it, it uh, turned out to be, uh, I'm happy to say, it turned out to be a uh, really uh, solid feature of Prime 3. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I remember reading somewhere as well is actually coming up with the control scheme for Prime 3 took about, what, nine months, was it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it was really, 
funny because uh and i keep keep uh, calling out uh Mark, rest his soul mark hh again but the we were the first if i recall correctly we were the first western developer to see the the we remote and wow. when i say we we remote i it was like this thing that looked like you know what if a what if a, an electronic shop exploded um and <laughs> but we uh Mark uh, was in his office, door shut, um, with a uh, sign on it, do, do not knock. Um, and we had to keep it in a safe. Uh, and, and he was responsible for uh, creating our uh, our APIs, our interfaces with that controller. Um, that was, uh, it, it was both exasperating because I didn't know what he had either. Uh, but we, we had a suspicion, uh, but uh, Mark in, in his, uh, you know, very cool British uh uh, f- format would come and be incredibly imperious and, and arrogant to us. I know what you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you peasant columnist. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was such a great teammate. And uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it, it was really, uh, it was really funny when we, um, uh, I think it was Mr. Takeda who we were talking to was one of the uh, hardware, uh, the, sen- the senior hardware um, executives there about the initial Wii uh, format or the Wii uh, specs. Um, I remember Jack Matthews in particular, uh, this was at an E3, if I recall correctly. Jack Matthews was like, uh, you know, we knew what the Xbox 360 was going to have. We knew what the PS3 was going to have. And the initial specs we were looking at, it's like, this is this is not not competitive, uh, you know, from a, a spec and the hardware standpoint, memory standpoint, uh, all all these disadvantages we had, and we were a little concerned, uh, to be blunt. Uh, and then, tada! They rolled out the the Wii remote, and uh, we they <laughs> kind of in unison, the whole team went, "Oh, <laughs> ah, okay." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I made a, everybody was watching at the E3 where the uh, the Wii was rolled out and the stampede when they opened the door of people running right past the Sony PS3 display to, to get in line to the Nintendo display to play the Wii U. We're like, ah, okay, yes, we we understand now. <laughs> we'll we'll be we'll be quiet. <laughs> well, I suppose at the time, right? I mean, because hindsight is always twenty twenty. I think a lot of people were thinking the same thing, and then. I don't think, well, probably obviously the higher-ups of Nintendo foresaw it exploding like the way it did. But yeah, I can understand how you might have some reservations at first. I think this really falls back to Mr. Awada and, and one of the, uh, he was very much a proponent of the blue ocean strategy. Hmm. Don't don't go to the red ocean where you're, you know, where it's crawling with pirates and and you're you're uh, you're facing a competitive disadvantage with 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 the the other players there. Go to the blue ocean. Go to where they're not. Uh, and he also recalled uh, frequently the uh, the book, The Innovator's Dilemma, uh, which which if anybody's out there is interested, is a fantastic book for for ideation uh, and, and business creativity. Um, and uh, the Wii remote in particular, I think, personified not only those, the tenants that, that, that came out of those considerations, but how Mr. Iwata himself parsed those sensibilities to the development teams. Mm. So how have you taken all this stuff on to, uh, to Dick Nine Games? All this, all this stuff, like how have you tried? I mean, because you, you've only been in the role, what, six months? Six months, uh, months? That's about it. Yes, I'm. I'm an old hat there now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so how have you taken all this, uh, everything that you've learned over the years and, and applying it to Deck Nine games? Because obviously um, Life is Strange True Colors has just recently come out. Yeah, happy to say uh, in fact, it's getting really good reviews. In fact, some of the, the strongest reviews, if not the strongest reviews of, of any games in the series. I went over to Deck Nine for uh, one of the more notable reasons is that was a area of games, the narrative game uh, this the the story driven game mm, truly yeah. story driven that's right not when i when i say story driven i don't mean something you read while the background level is loading um truly story driven game cinematic and theatrics um with hollywood level production values um i'd never done that before yeah we'd have cutscenes, we'd, we'd have stories uh we'd have cinematics and so forth but not at this level um and I, i've always strongly believed that you know, growth requires doing something that you haven't done before, period. Not mm. just doing something over and over until you get better at it, but doing something entirely different. If it's in the gym, if it's, um, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, read a book that's entirely outside of, of what, what you enjoyed previously. Um, and that's what Deck Nine really represented to me. Um, great team, it's, you know, really um, fantastic culture and um, uh, being able to provide snippets of the experience that I took away uh, of the creative process and the development process that we had at Retro, the, the rhythm and discipline, the, the production, the focus on tools and so forth, being able to, to, to provide some insights based on my experience there to the team at, at Deck Nine um, has been really enjoyable. Because mm. does story really cause a lot of delays? Like would so much time is spent on story because it everything has to revolve around it like when story is like the main point of a game because then everything has to be built around it right so as it, yeah yeah as opposed to a gameplay option where you can kind of just um, move stuff around on the fly right in it uh, on metroid prime for instance i'd say the story was about 15 percent of the experience yeah the, the other 85 percent was a story by way of expanding uh, exploration uh, and capabilities, uh, retraversal. Now this new this new suit allowed you to move into this area which you could only glimpse before, and this area unlocked these other experiences, these new bosses and creatures. That that was this story um, uh, as far as the Prime series goes. But with uh, Deck Nine, it's uh, it's an entirely different consideration, and uh, I've been really um, energized at seeing the writing process the difference in the writing process that from a a a true cinematic standpoint i mean these are real you know uh, you know people who have been heavy duty writers and in, in other disciplines and and uh, outside of games seeing that creative process unfold um is uh has been a a, a really valuable and very much enjoyable learning experience for me hmm is there often times, like say from a publisher, where you have to implement something into a game that you're re like you really don't want to do it? Like, uh, I don't want to implement this, but the, the powers that be make you do it. One of the, um, you know, having managed projects now for going on thirty years, um, one of the realities of production is to learn not to say yes or no, but learn to say we can do that but here's the cost. It's going to take another six months. It's going to cost another five and a half million dollars. Um, and we'll, we're going to have to staff up 
in these areas to support that and have to being able to do so with your receipts you have to be able to show and and rightfully so you have to be able to show this is our calculus specifically that goes into these these claims um sometimes the producer will say "Ooh, okay uh, the publisher will say yeah that's that's more than we think this is this edition is worth um forget it or what if and this is what usually happens what can you give us in this amount of time with this amount of money and that's where the resourcefulness and the resilience of the d- development team comes in okay we now have three months and they're going to give us another two million dollars um what can we what can we do um okay let's let's leverage this let's put an, put another spin on this uh change the you know repurpose perhaps a, a, a some resources here um that is really the reality of the developer publisher relationship in the uh, in across the industry by and large a lot of negotiating a lot of horse trading sometimes because what eats up a lot of the budget usually um uh headcount that's that's almost um yeah yeah if you were looking at a uh, a pie chart that's going to be about 65 70 percent of, of the budget a triple a project right now um cheap triple a project is a million dollars a month a million dollars a month. Yes. Yeah. And development what usually goes two to three years, give or take, usually with a AAA game. Yeah. A million yeah. dollars a month. That's a lot of money. Man, that's just counting headcount. Kind of the um, the the business um, average for headcount is twelve thousand, fourteen thousand dollars a month, depending upon what region you're talking about. So apply that as an average times the number of of uh, developers uh, on a project times the duration of the project, then throw in, um, you know, 50K a month for rent, uh, insurance, so on and so forth, or what we call SG&A, service group and administration charges on top of that, that that can, you know, very quickly uh, uh, add up to a lot of money. <laughs> like I said, a, a cheap a cheap AAA project is a million a month right now. Does it help somewhat that a lot of games are sold digitally these days so that the studio makes more of a profit as opposed to going through stores and discs and so forth? That's something that has been one of the most encouraging transitions uh, for the the business side of the games industry in that I remember when it was all box goods. So not only did you have to make the game to support the development, you had to duplicate it. The discs were, I think, gosh, about uh, 50 cents at the time. You had to put it in a jewel case or you wanted to take the cheap way out and spend three cents for your sleeve. Jewel cases were 10 or 15 cents as well. You wanted to put it into a box. You wanted to put a manual in it. There's a reason that manuals shrunk from the, I'm dating myself badly, from the early 90s. And you had that glorious Red Baron manual on the PC um, that, uh, or the uh, um, auto dual um, box that uh, had the little toolkit from origin. If uh, I'm really dating myself now, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> now you, you know, your, your manuals are, are, are online um, and there's no boxes. E- it, then not only did you know t- you just talking about the cost of goods um there was the product placement which is where a lot of the invisible money went to to uh games the retailers demanded top dollar if you wanted a kiosk uh in the store uh that that cost money they didn't do that out of the goodness of their heart if you wanted uh front facing if you wanted your box to face the, the customers that cost money otherwise you got the sidewards uh box um in caps, uh, also a lot of money, the, those kind of things. Then you had to consider, okay, not only did, did the um, uh, 
retailers get 35, 40% cut just, just by that. They get their product price product placement fees. Then there was a 15% uh, reserve on returns for, you know, if people didn't like it and they brought the game back, you know, there, there were those kind of considerations as well. The, uh, thinking at the time, if I recall correctly, 49.95 was considered premium um, when I worked at EA and uh, yeah, only gosh, maybe $13 of that actually, by the time it trickled through all of that, all of the old physical goods, uh, considerations, reservations, cost of goods sold, et cetera. Uh, it only came down to about $13 um, came wow. out as profit. Yeah. It's, I, you know, I apologize to anybody if, if my numbers are off, but um, um, it was, it was in that area. That's interesting. Cause I just, I wouldn't even think that like saying retail where the, how the box is facing would determine, cause I was, I thought that was just all marketing from the retailer's standpoint. Nope. nope. That's uh, re- publishers paid sometimes a lot of money, a lot of money for, for those kind of considerations. Now, uh, that's not, that's not the case. Although, um, you know, for instance, uh, there are things uh, such as uh, discoverability, uh, so forth, for digital releases. If you want your release to be seen, uh, where you know is it going to show up on a on a bestseller list or a top game list or an editor's choice list? And um, those are those are the considerations that can um, take a bite out of the the uh, profits, um, you know, for a developer or a publisher at the end of the day in in the digital space. I don't know if you can answer this. Um, because I've read about it and I don't know if it's true or even if you're allowed to answer it, but I've heard that like some, some publishers pay out commission based on the Metacritic rating of a game. I've heard the same thing. I've never worked in an environment like that. Okay. I'm, ha- I'm happy. I'm happy to say. So, um, do you want to cover Mario Kart 7, uh, a bit? Um, so how did that get off the ground? Cause that was kind uh, of, it wasn't just solely Retro's project, right? That was, no, a that was a collaborative project. A lot of people don't know that Retro was involved with that. And for instance, we, we created the majority of the tracks, uh, for, for that game. And on Woohoo Island on the level one, uh, the ghost racer is me. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I'm really? the ghost racer. Yes. That's awesome. Uh, they, they stuck, they, I wanted DK, they gave me Princess Peach. So I just had, I had to make the best of it. But <laughs> <laughs> that was, I was the fastest Princess Peach out there. <laughs> right. Wow. Um, that, that was such an amazing project to work on. Um, you know, working with Mr. Kono and his team for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, it was, again, entirely new platform for us. Uh, great experience on the 3DS, um, working with an entirely new type of game. And I think Nintendo had recognized our ability to shift so quickly from Prime 3 over to DK and to do a great job with it, that we had that opportunity. They needed help. Uh, they were short on resources. We had uh, a buffer in our time frame, And uh, so we, we dove in. We went over there to get an immersion. I think we were there for four days to get an immersion uh, uh, by their team into their, um, their tools uh, and uh, development uh, sensibilities. And then um, uh, we were off and running. Uh, we had uh, daily check-ins um, you know, as far as getting the code back and forth. Um, but uh, it it was uh, just a fantastic game. Mr. Kono is the real deal as well. He can drive. <laughs> what what's uh, even uh, a funny little anecdote is uh, later in the project as we were testing out, uh, we were helping them test the internet play. So we were up kind of late here in Austin uh, playing uh, uh, across the internet with players uh, in Japan as well as in Europe. 
we were te- we were stress testing how how their latency uh, uh, correction was working, in particular, and we were having a lot of fun with it. Um, and we had some of the the uh, team, the the EAD um, Mario Kart Seven team, um, was sitting with us in in Austin, uh, and a couple of them stiffened up a little bit, and then uh, I looked down, and there was Mister Iwata's me in the game, and <laughs> Mister Iwata was joining our game. And Did he beat uh, you? <laughs> like a redheaded stepchild. <laughs> 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 My hot button with, with Mario Kart has always been Likido and that ink splot. And I think he got me with that about six times in that game. <laughs> <laughs> uh but yes he he did he did uh, get me on that one uh, he didn't win that race if i recall correctly but yes it was that just, it just kind of reinforced uh what kind of person uh mr iwata was that he's going to join in a, a play test um you know with 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 developers around the world uh to to help help stress test his title and it went on to be a very successful title for nintendo it was a huge privilege to work on that yeah, so because with with designing just one level, do you have to storyboard, I suppose, the track first, and then work out how you're going to design it? Like, what 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 is the actual process? I mean, would it be would it be the same with every uh, single track? A lot is of there- the tracks that we worked on, it was 21 total tracks, if I recall correctly. Uh, a lot of the tracks that we worked on had examples in, from prior versions, going all the way back to the, the original on the SNES. Um, so we had those examples to start with, those layouts. And uh, it was the job of our um, um, uh, environment artists and our designers to, to emulate those as much as possible, to capture the spirit of those, uh, if not the direct layout, but to enhance those, especially because we had flying in in, uh, in the game for the first time. Um, so there was, uh, um, and they did great. Uh, that, that's one of the great things about Retro Studios is these guys were passionate about Nintendo games, all kinds of Nintendo games. I mean, even going back to, to some that never, even never made it to the US. Um, and we had huge DK fans. We had huge Prime fans. We had huge Mario fans, Mario Kart fans. Um, and uh, I'm sorry to say, the last time I had played a Mario Kart was like in the SNES. I hadn't, I hadn't touched it since. So uh, I was getting, I mean, just worked. <laughs> for, for like three or four months, you know, trying to keep up with these guys who knew, who just ex- instinctively knew uh, all, all about the game. They, they, they could play it in their sleep and still beat me. Uh, so that was a bit of a humble pie for me, but it was still a lot of fun. Yeah. Because obviously it still continues on because the, with each Mario Kart game, they remake some of the older games. So it's cool to see the tracks that you guys did in beautiful HD and, and stuff um, that is that's definitely amazing. And it was our first chance to work alongside other real Nintendo developers, a, a, a true Nintendo development team. Um, you know, we had spoken to them off and on a little bit through the years, uh, just mostly in professional uh, uh, introductions and so forth. But this, I mean, we were working side by side with with these guys. And um, what was perhaps most gratifying to us is as they started to see the tool sets that we were using, the processes that we were using, how we, we tracked and coordinated our, our efforts, they were, they, they were very uh, envious. And they were like, gosh, we, we need to do this. We need to emulate this. We need to, to, to um, start setting some of these processes up. And that was really vindication for um, what I had been proposing very early on at, at, uh, at um, Nintendo was you know, how to be more efficient. Uh, how to take advantage of the time that we have 
uh, to be better, to make better content faster. Um, and while still honoring, of course, the, 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 you know, time honored Nintendo creative process. Um, and we, the, the process that we had in place by the time the uh, Mario Kart team uh, was coming over to visit us was, was running at a, a, a really smooth clip and seeing and hearing their, their admiration for this process and their desire to, to, to take it back and integrate it into their, uh, their disciplines was really gratifying for us. It, it told us that, okay, not only did we, you know, knock it out of the park with DK, not only were we given the opportunity to work on Mario Kart 7, you know, these, these people are, you know, we're learning from them, but they're also learning for us. And that was just a hugely gratifying uh, moment uh, when we realized that. That we, 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 we were yeah. something besides the, the kids in the corner. I mean, we were true, true peers. Um, that was, that was a, a incredible. I think the industry needs more of that, to be honest, more East and West kind of collaboration, because I think both sides can learn a lot from each other. They both Strongly their, agree. Yeah, pros and cons, right? Strongly so did you, did you actually have to fly to Japan often to sit in with them? Um, we, we, for Mario Kart 7, we only went there once for that immersion. Right, and they they came to visit us a couple of times, and when uh, not not a very large team, it's about about three or four of them at the most, uh, would would come over about every three months, if I recall correctly, um, and uh, uh, so we would for usually go to Japan uh, for a kickoff, a product kickoff, uh, a product act after action review, or a, a major uh, rollout, uh, such as the uh, Wii U. Uh, to get some exposure to that. Um, so I think I, we, I went to Japan six times total uh, while I was there. So oh. almost nine almost nine years I went about six times total. And how, how, how long was the duration while you were there? About a week. Okay. That's a decent yeah. amount. Yeah, Not yeah. much jet lag. Too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got we got to we got to work in the hospital, uh, what they uh, what they call their headquarters building, the hospital. Yeah, it does look like a bit of a hospital building, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. They can it's easily really disguise first... it as one, yeah. <laughs> the, the first time we walked in, we felt, you know, I felt like a, such a yokel as I'm walking around slack-jawed with all this you know, gleaming white marble and stainless steel everywhere with not a poster to be found anywhere. Wow. So if there's like one pivotal moment or one specific moment that really resonates with you in regards to your tenure at Retro, is there a specific one that comes to mind? Mm. when we were at the in kyoto uh for the kind of the after action on uh donkey Kong, we were talking to mr awada and mr miyamoto was in the room and um this was when we were also getting our, our kickoff if i recall correctly for um or no i'm sorry this was december of of uh, 2010 so it was before we got the kickoff for um Mario Kart, uh, and Mr. Um, Mr. Iwata congratulated us on on uh, the completing Donkey Kong uh, and, and and how impressed he was with the project, which was you know just amazingly gratifying. But he, I remember he looked at Mr. Miyamoto and he said, "Do you ever remember any Nintendo game completing ahead of schedule?" Which we had done. We had we had finished all the versions, including the Japanese version, um, ahead of schedule. Um, not by much, but we did ahead of schedule. And, and Mr. Miyamoto, who you know has had you know 500 years in the industry at the time, uh, 
yeah, he, he just kind of looked and you know, he, he shook his head. No. And, and um, Mr. Owana said, I don't either. Uh, and so it was, that was perhaps the most gratifying uh, of all the challenges that we'd gone through, all the hard work, uh, the late nights, um, agonizing through, you know, new, introducing new processes and, and improving them, learning some hard lessons, making some mistakes. Uh, when, I mean, two of the most pivotal people in the history industry give such a uh, soft spoken compliment. Um, that was, that was, you know, quite a lot of vindication for an awful lot of work. Yeah. Well, I get a little, I get a little choked up <laughs> now, well, now, now that I think back, I mean, that was, that was quite a day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what you would have been involved in and what you had to deal with, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Retro's biggest and most consistent output was while you were there. I think that's, you know, I know you're a humble guy, <laughs> but um, I think, I think, and this goes for all the Retro team as well. I think you guys were all just a, a perfect, perfect team, perfect caliber of people as well um you had a great team to work with and it, you got the greatest thing on your resume right <laughs> i think uh t tim little uh who's uh, the engineering director there at retro um i actually worked with tim much earlier uh, on on some uh projects at uh, when i was at origin ea and here in austin um and uh, we were really fortunate to bring him on for the starting with the uh, uh dk project uh tim uh had a, a great saying he said i'd much rather have a superstar team than a team full of superstars. Um, and there's the wisdom in that is a team full of superstars is usually not a very good team. Um, the group at Retro Studios didn't have anybody that put on a turtleneck and got on a stage and a TED talk and a, with a microphone and gave these really smarmy pandering uh, dissertations on game, game development. Um, they, you know, didn't, uh, uh, you know, come in and, and leer at each other about creative differences. Uh, they were, uh, a, just a group of earnest, hardworking, um, respectful, resourceful and resilient people. Um, and I think that that is one of the things I've taken away most from my experience at, uh, retro is that, uh, you know, people, in the right environment with a little bit of support they don't need much can achieve so much more than the sum of their individual skills uh it's astonishing mm. yeah um so the retro studios was a superstar team not a, but by no means a team full of superstars yeah so uh going forward with uh dick nine games what's what's in the pipeline well you probably can't say much but um <laughs> as this shh, NDAs and secrets and development, but um, I suppose you guys are looking to the horizon. Yeah, we're relaunching Wing Commander. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I um, I can't, I can't say uh, what's yeah. on the horizon. Uh, but uh, I am very much looking forward to seeing um, what uh, uh, what our pro current project uh, that I'm that I'm working with uh, projects that I'm working with on moving forward uh, come out. I, I think uh, people. Uh, especially people that are that are fans of these uh, narrative, story-driven games will um, they'll really enjoy it. Yeah, well, Dick Nine's lucky to have you. 
Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they appreciate it as well. So if if anyone wants to keep up to date with you or anything that you're involved in, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, let's see. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, um, and uh, I will. Um, you know, my personal email is walker34 at aol.com. I'm happy to hear from you. Cool. Please don't well, send me spam. <laughs> well, that's what the spam uh, folder is for, right? So, and, and anybody and anybody that makes jokes about my AOL email, um, <laughs> I. <laughs> You're a veteran man. You're keeping it old school. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, yeah. We we actually had that was the interwebs before the interwebs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, it, it shows. Um, <laughs> just say it shows your wisdom. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and, and yeah, and then they they need to stay off my lawn too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, this has been a privilege. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Um, you're a master of 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 what you do. Um, I respect. Uh, you graciously and all the retro team you guys were a big part of my uh, youth my adolescent years so I very much appreciate all the hard work that you did it's um, I'm yeah much I'm, appreciate I'm, he I'm here as a representative of a group of great people hmm. um, so uh, they uh, I'm I still still talk to them uh, a lot of them uh, today. They've you know, a lot of them gone off to do great things in, in other places, but uh, the the time at Retro Studios working with such a fantastic group of developers uh, will will always be you know, have a special place in my heart. I'm glad it does. Well, that's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Uh, keep an eye on Dick Nine Games. They will be doing some even greater things, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> And Brian will be at the helm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that is the show. Brian, thanks again. Take care. Take care, Reese. Right. See ya.